Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Most of us who have been in church for a while are acquainted with the story of the potter. As Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and was instructed by the Lord to just watch what was going on. The first thing I want to talk to you about is we are the people who are broken by God in a sense of judgment. And this passage of Scripture that I'm starting off with demonstrates God doing a breaking with an encouragement and a chance for repentance. So with that in mind, let me read... Starting in that first verse, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, and so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, Can I not do with you Israel as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like a clay in the hand of the potter, so you are in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, Then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended for it. Now when we read that whole passage in its context we are led away from the conventional interpretation of the Scripture where most of the time you hear the story of Jeremiah going down to the potter's house being related to just an individual being remade by the Master for his purpose. I would say that that application is okay. It, it works theologically. There's nothing wrong with understanding that God remakes us. But really the passage carries a strong sense of judgment in this crushing of the vessel. And also the warning that if you do not do right, there will be judgment. If you do right and you repent, then I can bless you. And any nation, he says, that I choose to do this to, I can do that. So this clear reference to Israel guides us away from thinking about, I'm the vessel that in my wayward days I was crushed by the Lord and I was remade into a new vessel. That's okay. We've heard that preached a number of times. Moving on from that, we understand that God 
is willing to remake any vessel, be that a church, be that a nation, or an individual, to remake them because a flaw has come. That flaw is something that is unacceptable in that vessel. It cannot be used in the way that God intends for that vessel to be used because of that flaw. Perhaps you've seen a person that you saw so much potential in them. And you thought, my, how they could be used so powerfully by the Lord were it not for this flaw that they have. Have you seen that? If they could just get over this one problem, what God could do with them, through them. But they've got a flaw. The flaw renders the vessel unsuitable for the purpose for which it was designed. And Jeremiah watches the master potter, as he perceives a flaw in the vessel that just will not be allowed to continue. And he presses it back down into a shapeless mass and starts all over again. It applies to Israel. Israel being flawed because of their many failures before God, judged for their strings, backslidings, idolatry, And God wishing to remake that with the hope of repentance. If you repent because you are being judged. If you know the history of Israel, there were many times when God was squashing that vessel back down and trying to remake it. And if they repent, there's blessings. If there's not, he'll withhold those blessings. I think the application can be made to us as well. God wants to make us into what he wants us to be. He wants us to be a vessel that is appropriate and adequate for the purpose he has designed us for. And those flaws come and render us incapable of being used for that which we were designed. But then we have the judgment of the breaking that is without remedy. There is no hope at this point. And I take you to Matthew 21, 44. And Jesus said, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now this verse comes at the end as the concluding thoughts to the parable of the tenants. And let me remind you of the parable of the tenants. There was a man that owned some land. He was going to go away and leave the care of his land in charge of people who would take care of the crops and the harvest, the tenants of the land. And they would collect the harvest, and the man who owned the land said, I will send my servants at the time of the harvest to collect my portion. He sent Servants who were terribly mistreated. They were beaten. They were not given the landowner's portion. And then the landowner says to himself, I'll send my own son. They will respect my son. 
And logically, we think that they should, and they would. This is not their land. They have to stay in good graces with the landowner. But he sends his son, and the tenants, surprisingly enough, said, let's kill the son. He's the heir. So Jesus, telling this story, and he was a wonderful, masterful storyteller, able to bring people in to the details and captivate their attention, he asks his audience, the Jews to whom this story is applying, he says, now you tell me, when the owner comes, what will he do to those brutal tenants? And the Jews answered correctly that they would expect the owner to bring those wretched tenants to a wretched end and then lease out the land to people he could trust. And Jesus says, you're exactly right. That's the logical thing to happen. They beat up his servants. They kill his son. The landowner comes. He's not going to negotiate with them. Now, the application of this, again, is to Israel. This relates very strongly to the story of the potter. As God is the landowner, and the Jews were the tenants, they were the ones that were put in charge of the representation of God here on earth. The heathens didn't represent God. The Gentiles didn't represent God. The Jews were the tenants of the vineyard. And the servants that were sent from time to time were the prophets. You read through the Old Testament and you see how the prophets were despised and mistreated that were sent to Israel. They were not held in high esteem and great favor. But they were mistreated, the messengers of God. And then God, the landowner, says, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. And he did. And they killed the son. Now, Jesus is asking the Jews, which he hasn't died yet, but it's going to happen. He asks them, in view of that, what do you think the landowner should do? And they're not connecting the dots yet. They could be incredibly dull sometimes. What should the landowner do? Well, destroy those miserable wretches. It's spooky to enunciate your own doom and judgment. And lease it out to somebody who will take care of it. And the way this played out was that the Jews killed the son. And God then turned to whosoever will. If there were Jews that agreed and found favor in God and received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, certainly they were a part of the new tenants. But the Gentiles were now invited in. And as the church began to develop with a smattering of Jews who were converted and a great deal of Gentiles who were now, the door was swung wide open to the Gentiles and primarily through the ministry of Paul the Apostle who was the Apostle to the Gentiles. Then Israel begins to get jealous 
God's pouring his blessings on people that we never thought that God loved. But they are the ones that God is trusting to carry his work on, the church. The Jews failed miserably, and they were being judged. And in the conclusion of this parable that very logically now, very clearly we see applies to the Jews and their failure, then Jesus ends up by saying this, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. And on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now, if you understand a little bit about how stoning happened in those days, then you can make better understanding, get more clarity of what Jesus said. When you talk about the stone falling on them or them falling on the stone. And there would be a scaffold that would be built twice the height of a man. And the victim who was going to be stoned would be taken up on the top of the scaffold and their hands and feet tied. And then somebody would just give them a push. And they would fall down from those heights onto the ground. Now, you could survive that fall, but you would probably be broken up pretty severely from that kind of a fall without your hands or anything to be able to catch you and support you. And so they would fall on the stony ground. And then if that didn't do the job, the job which oftentimes it didn't, then they had a rock that would take two men to lift it, and they would aim the rock and drop it on the victim, crushing him. So when Jesus used this expression, and he said, Whosoever shall fall on this stone, and metaphorically he's referring to himself as the stone. Whoever falls on that stone in judgment is going to be broken. But whomsoever it falls on, it'll grind into powder. Neither one of those are good endings. They're both judgment. They're both without remedy. And I don't think the Jews still got it. But the general application of that passage, not just the contextual application to the Jews, but the general application is anybody who utterly rejects the Son will not be spared in judgment. Westside has a long history here in this community. Who could calculate how many people have sat in these pews and heard the preaching of the gospel through all of the years? How many people Will we ever know this side of eternity? Have heard the message and walked out the door and rejected the invitation to Jesus. Right here in our own church, our own community, we have people that have fallen on the stone. They stumbled at the thought of Jesus. They rejected the invitation. But whenever it comes time for Jesus to judge them, they'll be ground to powder. Because there's a lot of things that man or woman might do in this world that are considered heinous failures and gross sins. But God is a forgiving God. And it doesn't make any difference what you've done in your life. And some of you may be holding secrets that in this crowd today only you know. 
Maybe in your family, only you know. And when you think about it, you're shamed to think that you could have committed such an act and done such a thing. There are people who struggle with the failures in their life, the sins they have committed. That even when they pray, they think, I can't be forgiven. I've prayed with such people. I've been down at the altars with people praying and trying to break through. And I've heard them say, it's no use. I can't be forgiven. I've tried to get to the bottom of it. Forgiven of what? They don't want to talk about it. I can't even imagine how heinous it must seem to them to come before a forgiving God whose whole economy is about redemption and love and forgiveness and to pronounce judgment on themselves saying it's, it, it's so bad. God can't forgive me. There is only one sin from which you cannot recover. And that is the sin of having rejected Jesus Christ to the day of your death. Now, we talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But I cannot believe that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is anything more than rejecting his invitation to come to Jesus until the day you do not have an opportunity to come to Jesus ever again. I don't think carelessly, ignorantly speaking against the works of God or the power of God is the sin for which there is no forgiveness. Paul said, I was a blasphemer. And I was injurious. But he said, I did it ignorantly. But when you die, and you have resisted Jesus Christ until the very last, there is no remedy from that. When the popular, famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens, who passed away just recently, just in the past couple, three years. When he knew he was dying of cancer, he left instructions that no Christians were to be allowed near him in his dying hours. He gave warning. He said, when I'm dying, he said, I don't care what I say. I reject God and I reject Jesus Christ. He said, if in my delirium I accept Jesus, do not believe it. Because it's only because I'm out of my mind. I cannot think of any instance where I've been aware of anybody so thoroughly making preparations to reject God to the end. As that statement. And that is so shocking. And he said, furthermore, I don't want any Christians in there who might hear me in my delirious state making some concession about God and then leave here saying even Christopher Hitchens found God before he died. He didn't want that. He rejected it. Let's go on record. I reject God to the end, no matter what. And whoever falls on that stone will be crushed. And on whomsoever that stone shall fall, he will be ground to powder. It's a judgment. It's a breaking from which there is no recovery. The second breaking I want to talk about is when we break ourselves 
before God. I repeat this thought. God has a plan for us from the moment we are born. I can't tell you that I am convinced that that plan is so narrow and so specific that there's only one thing in life that God wants you to do, and if you're not doing it, you're out of His will. I believe His plan is much broader than that. But He has a plan for you. And at least that plan involves you loving Him and serving Him and enhancing the kingdom. His plan for you involves in you redeeming your gifts and your talents for His glory. That's His plan. So He has high hopes, just like parents do, for a new baby. Oh, I love to watch new parents with their little children. They have such high hopes. They want their children to be Einsteins. They want their children to be super athletes. They have such high hopes for their children. And rightfully so. Don't we want our children to excel in where they've been blessed? We understand that. God has high hopes for his children. And for any parent who has high hopes for your child, that they don't achieve what you had hoped for them, it's always a letdown. But for God who has high hopes for you, and if you don't live up to the kind of expectations that God has... God's heart is broken for his children. He sees his children sometimes wasting so much that they've been given. And God's heart must break. He must weep thinking, my child, I had so much in hope for them. All that they, all they could have done had they just yielded themselves to me had they devoted their lives and their gifts to me. And for God to watch all of those children who fail to excel, who fail to fulfill their purpose, it has to be breaking God's heart. So God has these expectations of us, and he gives us every opportunity to be a vessel of honor for him. I just read a note from a friend of mine. And he had said, please pray for my daughter. That she will quit doing the things she's doing. And start doing the things that God wants her to do. And my relationship with this man goes back far enough when I remember his daughter before she's doing anything that he's alluding to. And the examples go on and on in my life. I, I have other friends that they have children, I, and I remember them when they were just children, beautiful, bright-eyed, happy children. And everybody is hoping the very best for them as they grow up. But I see the children growing into adulthood and just going bonkers crazy in sin. 
And as much as that grieves my heart as a pastor to say, I remember when you were running around this church and your heart was so innocent and pure and you had a a vibrancy and you had a, a hunger for God. And now to see the things that they are doing, just just going out into the depths of sin, how it hurts me, but how it hurts God. He has high hopes and He gives us every opportunity the first few years of our life. We are being shaped by Him for His purpose. But sin messes up our life. Sin distracts us from God and His purpose for us. Sin takes us off course. And like the hand of the potter that pushed that flawed vessel back down to a shapeless lump of clay and begins that process over, so also must our old flawed self at some point be destroyed before God before we can really become a vessel of honor for Him. That life that has been marred and rendered unfit for God's service is what we call the old man, according to Paul. That flawed character, that that miscreant that we became because sin had infected us and impacted us so terribly. The old man. And Paul talks about the old man. In Romans 6, he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So we're talking about killing the old man. A literal baptism into Jesus Christ kills the old man. Unfortunately, I see too many people in my lifetime, in my ministry, who are trying to serve God without crucifying the old man. And it really concerns me when I see people who have been Christians for 10, 15, 20 years that they still have things in their life that they haven't even tried to work on. I understand a newborn Christian who is just beginning this walk that still has a few rough spots. I understand that. There was a man in Gilman Gilman City, Missouri, where I held revival, that was just a notorious sinner in that tiny little cow town. And everybody knew this man. He had a filthy mouth. He was mean as a junkyard dog. He hung out at the bars. He was just a rough character. But he got saved. And he started attending the little Assembly of God church there. And a lot of things about him changed. He was now a very friendly man. He was a big man, but a very friendly man. But the thing that had not changed immediately is he still had pretty salty language. And I remember the pastor telling me, he said, don't call on him to pray. He said, I've tried that. And the guy cuts loose with a few nasty words while he's praying. Well, I understand when you're just beginning that sometimes the change 
is taking place, but it isn't completed. But what I don't understand is whenever people are not working at bringing these things into subjection. When they don't care even about beginning by crucifying the old man. They want to bring everything they were into God's presence. And I don't know, I guess they're thinking, God, take me just as I am and leave me just as I am. Well, God will take you just like you are, but he wants to turn you into the image of Jesus Christ. He wants to get control of your tongue, your mind, your emotions. He wants to transform you. And so we have a responsibility of breaking ourselves before God. Only you can do that. It's your will. It's the breaking of your will. That you are willing to say, God, I know what kind of person I've been, and I don't know how to become the kind of person I ought to be. But I want to start by saying, I surrender to you. All to Jesus. Give it all to him. Surrender it all to him. Break the old man. Crucify the old man. And let God build you up a new creature in Jesus Christ. So it's submitting to God through this baptism with Jesus Christ. Not the water baptism we're going to do in a little bit. We're going to have to make sure that this baptism with Jesus has already taken place before we baptize you with water. About four years ago, I had a man come into this church that wanted to be baptized in water. He had had a very harrowing experience in life. And he was scared. And he wanted to get baptized. And I said, come meet me at my office. Let's talk. And he was fixed on this concept that he wasn't ready to meet the Lord. He needed to get baptized. And I began to dig into his life. And help him understand that water baptism is not going to seal you for eternity. Water baptism is supposed to be a testimony of what has already happened in your life. But he had it fixed in his brain that the baptism was going to fix him. And I went over it and over it and over it. It just wasn't penetrating. Finally, he actually said the words that I wanted him to say. I wasn't convinced he was fully buying into this. I baptized him, and I haven't seen him since. He came and got his cleansing, and he's gone, and he's okay. Now he can die. He's got his water baptism certificate. He can present at the pearly gates. It should let you in. Facetiously said. But until you've been baptized into Jesus Christ... The other things we do don't matter. we got to kill the old man. Number three, we break our treasures. Matthew 26 and verse 6 says, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. This is a very interesting story with two powerful elements. And there's multiple stories in there of women anointing Jesus. In in one instance, this instance, she breaks this alabaster jar 
full of this very expensive ointment, uh, perfume, and douses his head. In, an, in another story, a woman does a similar thing and anoints his feet. But one powerful element of this story is the remarkable selflessness of the sacrifice of this woman. The expensive ointment that we gather from other accounts is estimated to be worth almost a year's wages. Now, according to a CNN money chart that I I pulled up quickly, just to give us an idea of how much sacrifice this woman made. By age bracket, 25 people who are 25 years old on the average have a net worth of $1,475. They're just getting started in life. They went out and got in debt. They don't have much income yet. From 25 to 34, our net worth on the average jumps up to $8,525. By the age of 44, age span 35 to 44, average net worth is $51,575. Age 45 to 54, we should be worth 98350 and ages 55 to 64, uh, the average would be about $180,000 net worth. In other words, about that time, most of you would have a house paid for. And if you could cash everything out you own and liquidate all of your debts, which the older we get, the smarter we are about debt, aren't we? It's supposed to be. You could probably put together $150,000, $200,000. And then 65 and over, $232,000 in assets. What are you worth? And this woman brings this very expensive perfume worth a year's wages. What do you make a year? And we can see on this chart here that uh, if you make $50,000 a year, you're not going to be worth $50,000 until you're 44 years old. Up until that time, you're only worth about $8,500. So if you, let's say you make $30,000 a year. Let's say you make $20,000 a year. And you're, you're, breaking, you're breaking this, this jar and wasting it on Jesus. You are, you are spending more on him than you're worth. That would be jarring for any of us. Who could do that? Who could take a year's worth of anything and just give it to Jesus and walk away? Our, our financial planning starts kicking in. This doesn't work. We can't meet our goals if we start giving away everything that we make in progress. But this woman needed us to say, you understand, she gave sacrificially. That's the first point. The second point is, 
this powerful element of the provocation of the disciples who did not approve. They were sick. When they saw the value of that perfume and all of it being spilled out, they couldn't even rebottle it. It was gone. What didn't soak into the skin fell into the ground. There's no recovering. It's gone. And it wasn't just Judas. The Bible says the disciples, they were disturbed by this. And they got together and they all reasoned. They were thinking alike. They were all thinking we could have sold this and given it to the poor. Their greed, their envy, their covetousness. To think of of this as being a waste. Their brazen carnality that caused them to completely fail to see the spiritual significance of this act and started doing these monetary calculations about how that money could have been used to feed and clothe people. And Jesus has this really interesting response as he knows what they're thinking. And he says to them, the poor you always have with you. And I'm not sure that they understood what he was telling them. But no matter what that perfume was worth, you could go out and sell it and you could feed some people and you could clothe some people. But tomorrow there's going to be more poor people. Next year there's going to be more poor people. You would only make a dent in the need. But he said this woman did something so remarkable that impressed Jesus so much To prove that it was an act of total selflessness. That he said, I'm going to see to it that this goes down as a memorial. That every place the gospel is preached, they will hear what this woman did. Now, do you know how many people have fed the poor? Do you know how many people have clothed the needy? And that's a good work. And the Bible tells us we should be taking care of that. But this woman is the one that went down as a perpetual memorial of somebody who showed the right honor to God. This is the story. They're not going to be telling about the man they gave to the poor. They're going to be telling about the woman who anointed Jesus, who gave so much in this selfless, wasteful act. But the compelling point of the story is that somebody was willing to break their prized possession and waste it on Jesus. The world is full of unbelievers who feel anything done for Jesus is a waste. You have relatives and you have friends that think you are crazy for wasting this beautiful sunny day sitting in this church. You should be breaking out the bass boat and hitting the water. You should be out doing some yard work. You should be picnicking with the family. It's a waste in their assessment. They think that anything given to God is a total waste. They think time invested in working for the church or attending the church is a total waste. All the money that you give to the church, they might want to challenge you and say, Do you realize for all you've given to the church, you could have had a brand new car? But when the books are opened in heaven, 
It's not going to be the man that owns a brand new car that is written down in the Lamb's book of life. But it's going to be those who have wasted their life for Jesus. The question is, what are you willing to waste for God? Or the better question might be asked, what are you unwilling to waste for God? Billy Sunday, the famous fireball evangelist, gave up professional baseball to preach the gospel. The rich young ruler, on the other hand, couldn't give up anything to follow Jesus Christ. We're faced with these decisions that split our interest between personal comfort and benefit and doing that which pays spiritual dividends. The degree to which we are committed to serving God can impact so many decisions we make in life. It can dictate the kind of house you buy. It can dictate the kind of car you drive, the job you take, the career you choose. It can even dictate the person you marry, depending on how devoted you are to God. And depending on how sold out you are to Him, the closer you are to God, the more you're sold out to Him, the more you weigh these kind of decisions saying, if I take this job, if I choose this career, I cannot serve God like I want to serve Him in my heart. People run into these conflicts all the time. It's the real world we're living in. They need income. They need a job. They take things that that take away from their attention to God and godly things, and they make their choice. I'm not there to tell them what choice they ought to make. I'm here to tell you that you will be faced with difficult choices your entire life. But the more you love God, the more it impacts the kind of decisions you make the kind of debt you put yourselves into. If we become so in debt because we have to have bigger houses than we can afford and more cars than we can afford and then we can't serve God like we want to be serving Him, like we know we ought to be serving Him because now we're a slave to our debt, then we know what we're unwilling to break before God. We all have alabaster jars. They are filled with our prized possessions, our assets, our talents, our relationships, our habits, our rituals, our hobbies. And when we come to Jesus, some of these things are just in the way. And some people smash their alabaster jar before God and break it to say, I cannot serve you effectively if I keep this as my most prized possession. Sometimes those jars are filled with your plans for the future. And you are hesitant to surrender to God because you realize if you surrender to God, you cannot pursue what you were originally wanting to pursue. And that great fork in the road. Do I go what I want to go for? Or do I choose another path so I can rightly serve God? And then we have Christ's perspective Any of us who have been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you've already discovered that God has a different perspective on things, doesn't he? He sees it totally different than we do. So the first unique perspective has to do with the disciples' alternate suggestion. They thought it was a better plan to sell the perfume, give the proceeds to bless the poor. And they thought, when they got together and talked about it, that they were pure geniuses for this brilliant idea. And Christ's unique perspective tells them 
No, I like what she did. Your way is just like throwing a pebble in the ocean and expecting to see it rise. My way, she has done something so powerful and so unique. His perspective is totally different. There's only one Messiah. There's only one incarnation. incarnation. He'll not be back for a first time. Not as a baby. Not as a Messiah that will walk on this earth and be crucified again. Only one time. This breaking of our prized possession teaches us about the principle of selflessness. And although the disciples failed miserably to understand the importance of this selflessness, Christ made this startling announcement. This will be known around the world. Now here's the question. What was this lady's motivation? And we've heard this story preached a number of times. We've read it. And we've heard about the value of the gift, the carnality of the disciples, the approval of Jesus of what she did. We've heard those things. One thing we don't hear very often in this story is what was her motive? What drove her to break open this jar of expensive ointment? And the answer is this. You could even make this the title of a sermon you wanted to. She experienced love that taught her extravagant love for God. I don't know how many of us have extravagant love for God. He has extravagant love for us. But do we have extravagant love? Jesus challenged Peter. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter thought he loved him. But do you love him extravagantly? Are you just fond of the concept of God? You just have a tender spot in your heart. Or are you extravagantly in love with God? Because she was. And the disciples who followed him were not. They were not extravagantly in love with him. Their love for him, their appreciation for him, paled by comparison to this woman's love for Jesus. Now, we understand extravagant love because we see it here in the earthly realm. Two young people fall in love. The young man is smitten by this lovely young lady, and he thinks he's found the true love, the one he spends, wants to spend the rest of his life with. And in this state of suspended sanity, he enters into this era of extravagance. He doesn't make much money, but he's willing to blow his entire paycheck on this young lady. If he ever had a budget, which he probably didn't, it's out the window. He'll take her out to elegant restaurants where only rich people dine. Because he's extravagantly in love with her. He buys her expensive gifts. He buys her an expensive diamond ring. He's going to seem like it's going to be forever paying that thing off. Because he loves her extravagantly. 
Now, the more familiar you get, the tighter he becomes. But during that period of extravagance, there is no limit. Like that old movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where Jimmy Stewart says, What do you want, Mary? You want me to lasso the moon and bring it to you? Extravagance. So you laugh because you recognize extravagant love. But I wonder, do you recognize any earmarks of extravagant love for God in your life? This is what set the woman apart. She loved God extravagantly. And there is one more brokenness that I put at the very end. And it's buried in this story of the broken alabaster jar. It's a good breaking This woman was broken by Christ's love. She was broken like Saul of Tarsus was broken. Arrested on the road to Damascus. Broken by God. Broken by his love. She was broken like Mel Trotter who was broken. Read the story of Mel Trotter. His father owned a bar. The father's three sons, Mel and his two brothers, helped his father as bartenders. His father was a drunk. Mel was a drunk. His brothers both were drunks. By the time Mel trotted before, he was even to the age of 30. His life was ruined. He would go on drinking binges and leave his family for weeks at a time. And on one of those occasions when he returned, he found his wife sitting there with his little baby two-year-old son in her arms. He had passed away. He had tried to quit drinking, but he could not. Nothing worked. But as he saw that little baby... He blamed himself. Had I been here, had I been the father I should have been, this did not need to happen. And he stood before that little white casket with his wife. And he put his arms around his wife and he swore to her, I will never, never touch another drop of alcohol. Two hours later, he was so drunk he couldn't find his own way home because even the death of his son couldn't deliver him from the power of alcohol. Mel Trotter jumped a train, ended up in Chicago, needing a drink. He took the shoes off his own feet, and he went in and he pawned his shoes and bought enough money just to go down and buy a shot of whiskey. And he thought, my life is over. I'm not fit to live. And he thought he would go to Lake Michigan. And commit suicide. And he happened past a little mission. Pacific Garden Mission. And he heard them singing throughout the lifeline. A man who saw this young 27 year old man. Who looked like he was totally wasted and destroyed. Stepped out into the sidewalk and guided him in. Mel Trotter sat in that place drunk. And fell asleep during most of the sermon. But woke up just enough to hear the man who was preaching. Tell about there's a Jesus Christ that is bigger than your alcohol. 
And it got a hold of him. And he wanted that. And he went forward and he prayed with the preacher. And they, they said, God can set you free from this alcoholism. And that time it took. Because when Jesus does it, he does it right, doesn't he? And from that day forward, from that very second forward, Mel Trotter never, never touched another drop of alcohol. He found extravagant love in God that he could not find anywhere else in this world. He went to work for a mission. They made him superintendent of a mission. They started a mission in, in Saginaw. They started a mission in Grand Rapids. One of the, his brother and, and another brother started a mission in Los Angeles, California. All three of them got saved. All three of them running street missions, reaching out to the lost. They found extravagant love. This woman was broken by the love of God like the other woman who washed the feet of Christ with her own tears and dried it with her own hair because they loved Christ extravagantly. And it's only when we are broken by His magnificent love, I'm asking the question, have you really come to an understanding of what Calvary means? Have you really understood the message of love that's written in blood on Calvary how much he loved you because when you get a hold of that you're broken you're broken by his love and that little song that we sing oh how he loves me oh how he loves you and me he loves me he loves me and you just concentrate on that and suddenly you'll be broken by the love of God until you be freed to do this to love God extravagantly it's only when you understand his great love for you that you have the capacity to then love him ex ex extravagantly. When you say you love God, have you been broken by his love? Or are you just intellectually making a consideration of the facts and the circumstances? What measure of appreciation do you have for him? Or has his love compelled you to break your alabaster box and surrender it all?